0: This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I teach in the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And I'm here with Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hi there, Darren. Well, we've been on a little hiatus, uh, missing our last episode because we've both been doing some travel abroad. Alan, where have you been?
1: I was in uh, Beijing for uh, four days with some uh, people from the... Uh, from the ANU, it's um, hardly long enough to, <laughs> to make long-term judgments about the uh, future of, uh, of uh, China. But as always, I found it really useful to be uh, engaging directly with the people who are working on these subjects.
0: Was it with government folks or with other academics?
1: It was uh, basically with universities, uh, think tanks and uh, communist party researchers from the Central Party School as well as uh, diplomats. And I was there with a, a group from the, uh, of colleagues from the ANU. And
0: did they mention recent tensions in the bilateral relationship or did that kind of get put to uh, one we, side?
1: Were, we were duly admonished <laughs> at, various, uh, at various points, some um, uh, more in sorrow than anger, shaking of heads. Okay. Uh, some analysts say that Australia has not been as uh, as friendly to China as it uh, should have been, but there was great hope uh, coming from the uh, from the new Morrison administration.
0: Well, some analysts have said that, so they're certainly correct in that diagnosis.
1: I think the biggest uh, the biggest um, thing that I took took away from it uh, really was the growing recognition among the people we were talking to, anyway, that the uh, issue of the United States, and we're going to talk about this later in the in the uh, in the podcast, is not simply a question of the immediate trade balance, but uh, the emergence of a much longer term, uh, deeper competition than they might have expected uh, about uh, strategic positions in the in the world. So there was a sort of a uh, a new seriousness. I thought on the part of some of our Chinese interlocutors about that.
0: Yes, I think they're probably struggling with how to think about it at this early stage as well.
1: And what about you? Where were you?
0: Uh, Well, I was in Seoul in South Korea uh, on a research trip, uh, which was quite delightful to get some time away from Canberra. And the topic of my research uh, is also actually on China. And I, loosely speaking, do geoeconomics and economic statecraft, economic diplomacy in the bulk of my research and a few years ago the south koreans adopted or joined up with the united states to deploy a missile defense system that is designed to try to intercept missiles that might be lobbed across the border from north korea Uh, and um, this sort of happened in the middle of 2016 uh, but the chinese were not very happy about it and one of their concerns was that part of the radar and the i don't know the technology of the system might mean that uh, it increases the spying or the surveillance um, abilities of the United States to look into Chinese territory. And they were very clear with the South Koreans that they were very upset and that they wanted this decision to be reversed. And so what I was studying was the economic consequences of those political tensions. And beginning in the in July, August of 2016, various South Korean industries began to notice some difficulties in doing business, whether that was pop stars who had their, canc- uh, their concerts on the mainland cancelled, um, whether that was Korean exporters who had issues at customs, at the border with strict inspections, uh, and perhaps the two most famous examples, the most reported examples were lot day supermarkets that almost overnight, a uh, hundred or so of them were shut down in China due to fire safety, sort of health and safety regulations um, very shortly after it was announced that Lotte had uh, given up um, some of its land—a golf course, actually—that would be used to station one of the batteries mm-hmm. of this missile defense system. And the other one that attracted a lot of attention was uh, group tourist travel. So uh, again, almost um, overnight, um, all group travel, which was about half uh, of all the of the eight million uh, people who were Chinese uh, tourists who were visiting. South Korea sort of in 2016, about half of them uh, go as groups, um, probably because of language issues and and inability to sort of, navigate tourism infrastructure. And that travel was cut off again sort of uh, in March of 2017 uh, and is only now just slowly recovering. And so I was studying the links between politics and economics, uh, and in particular, yeah, What can we say about which industries are most likely to be affected? Uh, even here in Australia, we have, as we've already discussed, our differences with China and we have also uh, seen uh, some economic consequences. I remember reading some reporting earlier this year that some of our wine exports were being held or delayed maybe at customs. and so. Uh, and people often mention education, obviously, as well as a place where politics might interfere with the economic relationship. And so the question that I'm trying to answer and watch this space, dear listeners, uh, for some research into the future is which industries are the most vulnerable, which are the ones that are most likely uh, to to suffer um, some kind of consequence from political disputes? And then what, can, what policy responses might be available to governments to try to insulate economics as much as possible? Because thinking the big picture, I mean, one of the major successes of the Asian region more generally over the past half century is that they've been able to keep economics and politics very separate and all have gotten rich together um, and let their political, not let their political differences get in the way of that. And it does seem over the past decade, um, whether it's Japan and its 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 disputes with China over the East China Sea or even Norway and Norwegian salmon that was suffered uh, in sort of some kind of, import embargo after the Nobel Prize peace prize was given to a chinese dissident it does seem like economic relations are now sort of in some way hostage to or infected by politics and that uh, doesn't you know that doesn't um, bode well for future economic you know
1: growth in the region yeah well i'm sure your research is going to be increasingly relevant <laughs> <laughs> let's hope so okay
0: well turning to today's episode we will begin with the annual meetings of the united nations general assembly in new york Uh, before moving on to the latest developments in the US-China trade war and finally we will discuss briefly Australia's aid program in the context of the recent tsunami uh, tragedy disaster in Indonesia but turning first to the United Nations and in September of each year the United Nations General Assembly uh, convenes or commences its operations year this year it's the 73rd session with a high-level segment formerly known as the general debate, um, which is notable because every country's leader is invited to give a speech to the General Assembly. And this year, uh, these meetings went from the 18th of September through to the 1st of October, and there were some notable events that made the press. Um, The cutest one was the first baby of New Zealand, uh, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's daughter, Neve who attended meetings on the floor of the General Assembly. And that allowed um, more, you know, in the context of the Prime Minister sort of drawing attention to issues of combining parenting with with work, um, issues of gender equality more generally, and child poverty. At the other end of the spectrum, uh, world leaders noticeably laughed when donald trump was bragging about uh, his administration's accomplishments saying that i think he'd achieved more in the first two years than any president ever Uh, and he wasn't expecting the laughter in response and he said so but in his speech you know on a more serious note he used the opportunity to deliver this speech of the world to emphasize america first and the question of sovereignty and his sort of state-centric anti-globalism view of politics Um, and the quote that I have here is we reject the ideology of globalism and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Alan, what what jumped out at you from this speech? Um, What do you find interesting about the fact that Trump was giving this on the floor of the General Assembly, or is this just more of the same bluster from him in a different forum?
1: Oh, look, uh, a big thank you to Donald Trump, really. I argued in the uh, first podcast we did together that the uh, post-war order was uh, over. And um, you couldn't have got a better illustration of that point, really, than Donald Trump in his second speech to the United Nations. The very core of the order that the US put in place, and in, uh, at the end of World War II, standing up and uh, and saying that it was all uh, um, done and uh, done and dusted. Um, there was, say, as you said, there was a lot of focus on the laughter that followed the Trumpian very Trumpian claim, really, that his administration had accomplished more in two years than any other in the history of uh, the country. But the the speech was Trumpian in another way as well, in that it was um, rhetorically incoherent. Um, We're standing up for America and the American people. We are also standing up for the world, he said. Well, yep. Uh, There was another great line, I thought, uh, um... Let us choose peace and freedom over domination and defeat. Well, you know, yeah, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I can see why that's good. Uh, <coughs> it was interesting for the shout-outs to, uh, to the people that he shouted out to: um, uh, Kim Jong Un, uh, yes. uh, Xi Jinping, um, uh, Abe, and uh, Moon over over um, uh, Korea. But nationalist governments in India, Saudi Arabia, Israel, and uh, and uh, Poland. But not much for the old allies and particular boos for Iran, Venezuela and uh, inverted, open inverted commas, so-called experts uh, who had, um, uh, uh, which I think means the like of you and me, uh, Darren. In some ways, um, Trump was um, preaching the virtues of the uh, peace of Westphalia, that is uh, sovereignty and non-interference in the internal affairs of others and this was the sort of thing that you would have heard from developing um, countries including uh, china until very recently but that sort of emphasis on sovereignty didn't last all that long Uh, he said uh, although the united states will not tell you he said The United States will not tell you how to live or work or worship, but pretty soon followed that up by the advice that all nations in the world should resist socialism and the misery it brings to everyone. My favourite part, though, was the uh, total lack of any irony in the emphasis on patriotism and sovereignty, followed immediately by an (coughs) enthusiastic recapitulation of the Monroe Doctrine. So uh, here in the Western Hemisphere, we are committed to maintain our independence from the encroachment of expansionist foreign powers. It's been the formal policy of our country since President Monroe that we reject the interference of (laughs) foreign nations in this hemisphere and in our own own affairs. So that was my favourite line. But the second most, uh, my second favourite was the President's claim that uh, while the United States was the largest giver of foreign aid, this was not being reciprocated by others. This was a very, <coughs> a very curious claim. He seemed to be implying that others should be giving foreign aid to the United States and the uh, fact that they, uh, that they weren't showed that the system was uh, skewed. Um, foreign aid, he said in future, and we're going to talk about Australian aid later on, would be given to those who respect us and are our friends. So it's very different. Uh, view of what development assistance is uh, all about. So, look, the, to to sum up, there nothing in it sounded like American leadership in the way that we've traditionally thought about it. But there is no doubt that it was showing a path that is, you know, one of uh, as as you said at the beginning, um, you know, patriotism and uh, and. Um, and protectionism that others are prepared to enthusiastically follow.
0: I want to be a little bit more optimistic simply because we are sort of almost chuckling at some of the absurdities in the speech and some of the incoherences uh, and the very fact that he was laughed at by the room for saying something so ridiculous and just irrelevant, you know, to the the purpose that brought him there. You know, he's not the only one who who spoke, obviously, uh, the French President Macron gave the exact opposite speech, um, calling, you know, or extolling the virtues of multilateralism and that countries need to work together to solve global problems. Should we be sort of calling the death of this rules-based order just because one you know, clownish type figure was elected? Um, isn't everyone in the room ex- sort of expecting that we'll revert to some status quo down the track and we're tolerating this um, pageantry? Um, uh, while it lasts?
1: Yeah, no, look my argument isn't and hasn't been that the that a sort of rules-based order is uh, is over, there will be a uh, a rules-based order. but the particular post-war international order, uh, driven by an American uh, commitment to multilateral institutions like the United States send an and an alliance system, uh, I think that's uh, that's over.
0: Okay, well, let's turn then to our new Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, who delivered her first major foreign policy speech uh, on the floor of the United Nations General Assembly. And in her speech, you know she did extol the virtues of the rules-based global order uh, following the consistent line from her predecessor, Julie Bishop, and talked about questions of of non-proliferation. Um, And Australia's continued support for the Iran nuclear deal, which, of course, is a bit of a departure from the American position uh, to walk away from that deal. What jumped out at you in her speech, Alan?
1: Well, uh, I think what what jumped out at me really was the uh, differences between what she was saying and what President Trump was saying. I mean, this has all been uh, rather downplayed for understandable reasons by the... um, by the government, but it, but it was uh, noticeable. I mean, uh, Senator Payne began by saying, "We are all proud members of this venerable uh, institution, and uh, you know we stand for an international order based on uh, rules and cooperation." Uh, Trump uh, made a great play of the fact that the United States was withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Commission. Mm. Uh, Council, rather, um, Maurice Payne made great play of the fact that Australia had joined it uh, for the first time. Uh, a very clear difference on uh, on Iran. Um, uh, Trump totally rejected the nuclear deal. Uh, she pressed a, uh, Australian support for the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, as long as Iran abided by its uh, commitments. And uh, she talked actually about moving towards a world free of nuclear mm. weapons. Uh, for example, she was um, positive about open markets that facilitate the free flow of uh, trade, made great play of uh, of climate change, uh, as well as the, and the implications for the countries of the South Pacific. So it was a really different uh, tone from that of President Trump. Do you think the Americans would pay much attention to...
0: What countries like Australia are saying is there? Does it matter that we've departed from them, or is this all just sort of caught up in the noise of, of the event?
1: Oh, I think it'll it'll mostly go under President uh, <laughs> Trump's, uh, he Trump's to radar mm. uh, radar for uh, for a while, and uh, and you know they'll they'll. There's no doubt that the government will continue to sort of uh, emphasise our support for the US alliance and so on. So it's it's really the tonal differences mm. that I thought were most interesting.
0: Well, the foreign minister had a, a busy week uh, with a, one other very important event, which was her first meeting with Chinese foreign minister and state councillor Wang Yi. And this is, the f- is, as I understand it, the first official meeting between our foreign ministers since Malcolm Turnbull delivered his China reset speech at the University of New South Wales a few months ago, and, and it was the topic of a, a previous podcast. How is the reset going?
1: Well, one of one of the good things, or one of the the things that uh, is most useful about Leaders Week at the UN is that it permits speed dating of this uh, of this kind, and. Um, we don't know, of course, what went on in the meeting between uh, Senator Payne and, uh, and uh, Wang Yi. But when I was in Beijing, the Chinese accounts of it were that this was, you know, had been a positive uh, foundation on which to build um, relations. But the real test will come in whether a formal meeting uh, is announced before the end of the year, because we haven't had a ministerial uh, visit to China for a long time, and at the moment, all we've got is the uh, oh gee, we, we must get together sometime, <laughs> <laughs> and we need call to me. We, call me. Call yeah, me. We need to move uh, move a bit further than that,
0: and we can't move on and at, without mentioning baby diplomacy at least for a minute. Yeah, it, Prime Minister Ardern of New Zealand obviously grabbed headlines, and I think yeah. it's a very positive step for her to highlight some of the issues that working parents, working mothers in particular face by bringing her young daughter, Neve, onto the floor of the General Assembly and to have Neve start crying during her speech and be brought out um, by her father and into a quiet area to be calmed down. Uh, Is this kind of... uh move uh, this publicity drawing movement she was on the Colbert report not Colbert sorry yeah. he's not no longer got his comedy show but he has a, yeah. a variety show he took over Letterman's job but he was on you know the night show with uh, Colbert and getting a lot of press raising the profile of New Zealand and the issues that she
1: cares about Is this an effective form of diplomacy Ella absolutely I mean talk about soft power I mean she couldn't have uh, she couldn't have got uh, better uh, coverage it was a it was a good speech too it was uh, it was well written and hard to think of anything further from the tone of President uh, <laughs> Trump's speech. Um, this generation she proclaimed, see themselves as global citizens now global citizens is <coughs> not something that um, that uh, exists in the uh, in the uh, trumpian uh, un- universe um, she she said um, uh, she she ended it by by talking about um, uh, New Zealand's national goal as of being uh, as being kindness. Now that's not something you hear very often in the uh, in the United Nations. So I know I think she did uh, she did uh, brilliantly.
0: Okay, well it's finally time for us to talk about the U.S. China trade war. We've been avoiding this for a while, but. Now, events have really uh, accelerated. Now, we've been watching, obviously, um, uh, since March, I guess, in early this year, when the United States first implemented tariffs on steel and aluminium, uh, which prompted a predictable backlash from Canada, the EU, and from China. And those states retaliated um, with some politically sensitive tariffs on American products, such as bourbon from majority leader Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's home state of Kentucky. Now, these tariffs all seem to be prima facie breaches of WTO rules. Uh, Trump is claiming um, national security uh, as a, an exception to the the, the World Trade Rules uh, under the GATT. Um, and But, unsurprisingly, several cases have been brought uh, to the WTO by the EU, China and others, and the US has made counterclaims um, as well. Now, this all might not really matter since the number of judges that work for the WTO is dwindling. I believe as of this month in October, the WTO's appellate body, which hears obviously appeals from first instance decisions, is down to its minimum number of judges of three, because the United States has been blocking the appointments of new judges. So it doesn't seem like there's going to be any swift conclusion to these legal disputes. But the reason we are talking about this today is the latest escalation, which happened last month in September, when the Trump administration imposed 25% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods entering the US. And I think the total export value was about $500 billion. Um, and he made statements that he would be prepared to place tariffs on all Chinese goods entering the U.S. China, as predictable, uh, predictably retaliated by imposing new tariffs uh, of between five and ten percent on another five thousand categories of goods, which amounted to about sixty billion dollars of American trade exports in total. This means, as of now. Chinese tariffs cover about 60% of American exports to China. So this is really getting out of hand. Um, Trump's strategy, aside from his declared vow to reduce the trade deficit with China, does seem to be an attempt to bring China to the negotiating table on a number of issues that relate to concerns the US has with Chinese trade and industrial policy practices. So we're talking about the protection of intellectual property, uh, market access for American companies in the mainland, uh, and Made in China 2025, China's ambitious industrial policy to develop expertise in some high-tech sectors. And I really don't know, you know how this this is going to end. On one hand, China will run out of American goods to, to put tariffs on uh, because of the trading balance. Uh, so it can't escalate you know, much further, um, as econ- or at least economists assume that it can't escalate much further. Having said that, um, a Communist Party advisor and former finance minister, Lu Jiwei, has threatened uh, essentially that China could halt exports to the US of components and mess with production chains. You know, For example, the Apple iPhone is, is, is assembled in China. And so that could be one way of retaliating. Um, but on the other hand, many argue that the closed nature of the Chinese political system means that President Xi Jinping can endure the damage from the trade war for longer, and that on the United States side, eventually American voters in swing districts are going to feel the pinch uh, and punish the Republicans maybe in the upcoming midterm elections at the ballot box. So there are many angles to this dispute. We could talk about it for multiple podcasts. What I thought I might do, Alan, is is play devil's advocate here and posit three arguments to you about why the trade war might be a good thing and have you respond the first argument relates to australia itself and and the, and the impact on australia now DFAT's secretary Frances adamson gave a speech on the 18th of september in canberra uh, and she sort of she noted that whether or not it was true that trump's claim that trade wars are easy uh, easy to win um, smaller open economies like australia definitely lose on the other hand a commonwealth bank uh, research note that i read Um, saw that China or stated that China takes about 30% of Australian exports, um, but that 77% of those exports are consumed in China and only 23% are re-exported in some fashion. And then only a, a fragment of those, a fraction of those are going on to the US. So the point here is that Australia's exports to China may not be affected by the trade war. And in fact, Australia might benefit as an alternative market for American and Chinese goods, um, given that we have free trade agreements with both countries. So couldn't from a sort of a narrow economic benefit, uh, in a narrow economic sense, Australia potentially benefit from from the trade war? No. Okay. why?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, either economists are right in what they've been saying for 200 years, or they're... uh, or well, they're not. The Productivity Commission last year uh, put out a, uh, a report which showed, uh, you know, conclusively that uh, Australia will suffer from any increase in the trade war. So it's it's pointless doing little tweakings mm-hmm. with what might happen to Australian, uh, you know, uh, uh, exports in particular uh, markets. Tariffs are a, uh, a Tax on consumers and a spiral downwards would result in declining living standards in Australia. So whatever the answer to the problems, and there are problems uh, in the current international trading system, uh, tit-for-tat trade wars are not the answer.
0: Okay. well, that's the economic dimension. Let's then move to the strategic dimension. Uh, So my second devil's advocate argument relates to broader questions of China's role in the international economic order. And it is argued that part of the reason why China has benefited so handsomely from joining the World Trade Organization and participating in international trade more generally is or has been a degree of a lack of reciprocity. And this is the idea that China has enjoyed open markets around the world to export its goods but has really kept its own market closed to foreign competition. And this is not through tariffs, so this is not necessarily a violation of the black letter law of the World Trade Organization, but more the spirit of the rules through measures such as protectionism, uh, sorry, as as subsidies um, in excessive regulatory burdens on foreign companies operating uh, in China, um, the forced transfer of technology, from western companies as a condition of them operating uh, on the mainland. And so the question here is this isn't really a trade war but it's more of a sort of a, a battle for technology and for you know global standards and and above all a push for reciprocity. The argument here then would be that the only way to get China to change some of these more subtle protectionist policies is to be you know to escalate a trade war like this. Uh, And and that's the only way of getting their attention, bringing them to the negotiating table. Uh, And that Australia should be happy that the US is willing to pay the narrower economic costs that you identified in your previous answer in order to achieve some fundamental change in the way China relates to this global system of rules and, you know, and, and, and particularly around questions of reciprocity. What do you say
1: to that? Well, what I say to that is that it's the same as the argument that you've got to destroy the village in order to save the village. Um, uh, It just uh, makes no sense unless you have no faith whatever in the uh, capacity of other negotiating uh, tactics. As I said before, I mean, there's no doubt that there are problems uh, in the uh, international uh, Trading system with the WTO in in particular, but those are acknowledged. The Chinese acknowledge that there are mm. uh, problems there. They and the Europeans have been willing to uh, negotiate. Those negotiations would be uh, hard fought, but what trade negotiations in history haven't been uh, hard fought? So I don't. I just don't uh, buy the line that this is the only way of uh, of uh, sh- shaping. A, uh, a more responsive uh, international trading system.
0: I, the, again, the optimist in me wants to believe that while Trump might have brought the US political system to one extreme policy position on this, there is a growing bipartisan consensus between Republicans and Democrats of a need to, to be a bit tougher uh, in its nego- in their negotiations with China. And I wonder whether this extreme position, again, perversely, by burning down the village, Will give more and more mainstream you know, future administrations some leverage to negotiate some compromise that uh, that that is you know achieves the kinds of of reforms that we're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe, 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 Darren. But if, if in in doing so you've delegitimized the uh, rules based uh, mm, international trading. Uh, system, uh, then you' just you're just storing up more problems for yourself uh, in the future. And as I said before, when we were talking at the beginning about uh, China itself, I think there's a growing sense that this is not simply about trade. this is also you mentioned uh, China uh, 2025. China, this is 2025. also about a larger geostrategic competition. Uh, in the world, and the, the Americans are trying to use trade for broader purposes, just as the uh, Chinese were trying to use trade for their own broader mm. purposes uh, earlier.
0: But is the fact that this is competition or about these larger questions of, of of strategic competition? Couldn't that justify the costs? I mean, your strategies have to you have to pay for them somehow. Uh, again, this is indirect. Um, but if you're genuinely worried about the consequences, for example, of of, of China uh, acquiring leadership, perhaps monopoly power in certain industries, uh, you you recall in our previous episode we discussed uh, the banning or the effective banning of Huawei from Australia's 5G uh, telecommunications network. So I guess the question here is, again, like, are there risks down the track um, that re- that relate to China? continuing on its present trajectory that would be unacceptable for, for the United States and, and us by virtue of our alliance with, with them that might justify these extreme measures now? Or is this...
1: There or be, look, there will be long-term uh, competition as there's always long-term competition in the world and the important thing is that that competition is played out within a, uh, with, uh, within a framework that, uh, you know, reinforces international order rather than than undermining it. And I don't think that's what's happening at the moment. Okay,
0: fair enough. Well, the third argument then, if the first was about economics and the second was about strategy, the third one's about domestic politics. And I wanted to return to a theme we discussed in our pilot episode of the podcast on the rules-based international order that you have already raised, Alan. And this is the question of not threats from China, but bottom-up threats to the order coming from publics in advanced industrialised economies who are increasingly feeling that the system, however that is defined, is not delivering for them and that they are making decisions electorally through Brexit or through Trump's election to reclaim their sovereignty, to reclaim their sense of, of, of purpose, no matter the economic cost. And so the question, as I think I said in that first episode, is how do we convince voters of Western Sydney or Northeast Ohio or the English Midlands to maintain or to give their consent uh, to their governments ceding some authority to these rules and institutions without bringing them, you know, all, you know, without, uh, in such that we don't have to bring the entire system down with them. And so the argument here is that one way of, of resetting the conversation on how to reform this trading regime, the system of rules, to make them friendlier to workers, to make them more politically palatable to the swing voters of the West, um, is to bring about some radical changes, possibly through negotiations that would you know, come out of this kind of trade war. And that some of the you know, the most extreme elements of the neoliberal um, sort of Reagan, Thatcher economic system that has emerged need to be uh, you know, wound back uh, and going at this through the lens of a trade war with China is one way of doing that. I also note, um, you know, breaking news over, overnight, um, there's been a renegotiation of NAFTA, so the United States, Canada and Mexico have uh, have come up with a new trade agreement that initial reporting suggests is much friendlier to labour unions, um, and, seem, and Robert Lighthizer, the US trade representative, seems to have threaded a needle where he is keeping both the left labour on the labour union side as well as the business community roughly on side with a new what it seems to be a new type of trade agreement so again the the, trade war is not the best way of going about this but there is certainly a need or at least this is the argument to shake things up to try to reclaim some political support at the grassroots level could this be one way of doing that
1: well it's of course, it could be one way of doing it. it <laughs> a good one way. way of doing it. Is it a good way of doing it? No, it is not. And uh, those issues that you you raise are obviously on the minds of every government in uh, uh, around the world, from you know India's to uh, uh, to uh, New Zealand's. Uh, uh, Jacinda Ardern made the same points in her speech that we were talking about uh, earlier. So, a trade war is one way of doing that, but it's the very worst way. Of, uh, of doing it. There are other options which uh, should preferably be pursued.
0: Okay. All right. Well, let's move on to our final topic today, which arises out of the terrible earthquake and tsunami that struck uh, the Indonesian island of Sulawesi uh, on Friday, the 28th of September, uh, with the city of Palu worst affected. Uh, the current death toll is already over 1,000, with some 50,000 displaced, uh, but many are warning that the final tolls will be much, much higher. On the 1st of October, uh, reporting suggested that President Joko Widodo had told Indonesia's foreign minister that Indonesia would accept international assistance. um, And this is in contrast to the recent earthquake in Lombok in July 2018, when Indonesia um, refused or said it didn't need any international help. But International assistance in this instance would be selective. It would prioritise, uh, you know, certain planes that can land on 2,000 metre runways, tents, water and sanitation, power generators, field hospitals and medical assistance. So there seems to be, you know, the the, the countries that are um, suffering these events are, are placing a lot more conditions on 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 how they can be helped. Now, if we think then to the Australian context, this tragedy occurs. Against the backdrop of leadership changes in our development space, we have a new foreign minister, but also a new assistant minister for international development and the Pacific, whose name is Anne Ruston. And her role has been downgraded from the former ministerial position that was held, of course, by Conchetta Firivanti-Wells. Rustin is the third international development uh, minister and or assistant minister in the last four years, but she does bring experience working with leaders from the Pacific in particular, having previously worked on fishing on issues. Um, now, the new assistant minister has been very clear that, or insisted that the downgrading of the portfolio from ministerial to assistant minister level does not mean uh, the aid budget will be cut. But that's... Alan, you know, saying the aid budget will be cut assumes that the need for aid is not going, is going to be static. Um, and I wonder whether, you know, tragedies like this portend a greater need for Australian assistance into the future. What's the state of play here?
1: Well, look, I mean, this is obviously a, a, a terrible um, disaster, but it's a disaster of a kind that in any case, is always quite frequent around the uh, the Indo-Pacific, the ring of fire yes. and so on. So in- Indonesia is prone to these and uh, these sorts of uh, problems. And as the both the De- Australian Defence White Paper and Foreign Policy White Paper make clear climate change in the South Pacific is going to increasingly uh, cause uh, sort of uh, extreme weather events yes. there to which there'll have to be uh, disaster relief. My my uh, problem is not that the, uh, we have an assistant minister rather than a minister for aid. I don't think that that's um, uh, going to be important one way or another. It, it is the very limited um, uh, amount of uh, money in our, uh, in our aid uh, program at the moment to do an increasingly wide variety of things that the government uh, wants to do all under one banner: disaster relief, development assistance, uh, commitment to fund infrastructure uh, d- uh, development on climate change, and to compete with uh, and to compete with uh, China. All all at a time when, uh, as a percentage of um, gross national income, the Australian aid budget is now 0.19 percent. Uh, compared with the government's original uh, commitment when the, the um, uh, Abbott government first came into power of, uh, of uh, 0.5%. Mm. Even in real terms, it's uh, the same level that it was at 10 years ago, but much more is uh, being asked of it. So I don't think saying we're not going to cut aid um, is uh, all that much of a statement uh, so far. I think there's a and need to think very hard about what we mean by aid what we're trying to do with it
0: do you think there might there's an old aphorism that there's no votes in in aid you know the australian public is you know, like all publics everywhere uh, are skeptical of 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 money going offshore when you could build always build more schools and hospitals with uh, or give tax cuts with the uh, hard earned taxpayer dollars but in recent you know in this year alone the australian government you know shelled out you know a significant amount of money to build this uh, internet cable mm-hmm. uh, with uh, the Solomon Islands uh, because of particular security or strategic concerns about Chinese influence and I just wonder whether or not the increasing sort of activity uh, of China in the region might allow a greater um, greater scope to to redefine um, aid. Issues of aid and development through a more security lens, like it's this is the idea of the securitization of, of economic and development policy that it's easier to justify to the Australian public doing these kinds of things if they're done for national security reasons. It's there are that's a slippery slope and it brings you into dangerous places. But if the objective is to increase our activity and increase funding,
1: maybe that's one way of doing it. Well, this is a subject we can talk about at uh, great length. Uh some other t- other time, but uh, you know I, I think very, very strongly that we need to reconceptualise the way we think about the instruments of persuasion mm-hmm. in Australian uh, foreign policy. I don't think we need to securitise them. Uh, but we need to understand that uh, spending money to shape the views of other countries is as valid an expenditure. Uh, as spending money on the instruments of uh, deterrence or of uh, war fighting or of national security,
0: we don't just need to understand it. We need to persuade the Australian voter. Uh,
1: well, we need to persuade, persuade the Australian government to persuade <laughs> the Australian <laughs> uh, voter. I, I think I think it's easy enough to persuade. You're not talking about all that much uh, money compared with the you know large. Um, uh, expenditures uh, within the budget. But I think we can do it better than we do it now.
0: OK, well, let's wrap up with our final segment, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what are you reading, listening or watching at the moment?
1: Well, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed by geopolitics and economics at the moment. So on the way to uh, uh, China, I started reading and um, Ian Johnson's book, "The Souls: The Souls of China which is uh, published in uh, Penguin. Johnson is a journalist and researcher who knows China uh, well. It's a wonderfully deep and insightful account of the growth of spiritual thought in China as the economy and society transform. It looks at um, the traditional forms of Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism, as well as the growth of, uh, of forms of Christianity. Uh, recently, and it's a real reminder to me that if we, uh, if we, in order to get for Australia to get China policy right, we've got to understand the society deeply and in all its dimensions. What about you?
0: Ah, well, I also used my travel to to finish off uh, something which was a television series that I started uh, some years ago. Now, Mr. Robot, uh, which just had its third series. Um, wrap up, or at least that's the most recent series. Uh, And all I would say to our listeners is that have a look at the pilot uh, of the series, Mr. Robot. Uh, And if you are the first five minutes before the credits roll, you will get a sense of what the show is about. And in my case, I was hooked immediately. It's about hacking and cyber and info security. Uh, And then it turns into a much more complex sort of family melodrama and, and psychodrama um, with all sorts of issues to do with mental health and and uh, but also the end of the world as we know it uh, through anarchist uh, hacking collectives who, who break into large corporations and, and cause mischief. So there's a lot to chew on. Uh, and one of the great things about the series is its creator, uh, Sam Esmail, was able to update it for event real-world events. So Trump-like politics um, makes an appearance in the second series and a very big appearance in the third. So it's quite... It's quite a lot of fun. Um, not perfectly even in terms of its quality, but the first series and the third series in particular were were lots of fun. So highly recommended. Okay, well that is all for this fifth episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank our AIA intern, Stephanie Rowell, uh, who is our research assistant, uh, and Manny Bovell, our audio engineer, uh, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for technical support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AIA CEO, Melissa Conley-Tyler, for her constant support. Thank you, and talk to you again soon.